G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. Previously on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, we looked at other ancient Near Eastern flood stories and the way that modern source critical approaches to the biblical text to value and ultimately destroy the complex fabric of the biblical story as received by its first audience. This week, we've got something a bit more edifying as we go deep into this special introduction to Noah's story. That's right, Chris. I don't really enjoy spending my time defending the text from people who haven't seriously engaged it from a position of faithfulness and submission to the text anywhere near as much as I enjoy drawing out the truth of the text itself. So I'm going to enjoy getting back into the details of the scriptures today very much. And it kind of feels like it's been a while since we did that. Yeah, and when you love the biblical text like I do, we do, uh, it feels like forever. So let's get into it. We're going to read from Genesis 6, verses 9 to 12 today. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Okay, so that was the ESV there. Once again, you'll see the word earth four times in the translation, where it really should say land. I keep coming back to that point because we need to be consistent with the usage of that word eretz every time we see it. And according to typical biblical usage, it refers to the land. And it's important because as you know, the biblical text is so deep and multifaceted, and unless we're prepared to submit to the text and let it speak to us on its own terms, we're going to miss layers of meaning that were incredibly important to the target audience. I don't like to get too much into theology, but if you understand the usage of the terminology, you will see the theology of the text coming through. We see the consistent use of wordplay between Adam and Adamah, reminding us of the connection of man with the land. And when we see Eretz, usually translated as earth, we're supposed to be thinking about the land in the way that Israelites talk about the land. That phrase for them is a connection to their homeland. It's a connection to Israel. That's identity on corporate and personal levels. It's a connection to sacred space. And when the Nephilim are left to cover the land unchecked, the land itself becomes corrupt, along with everything in it. I don't want to get into trite philosophies about slaying the giants in your life, but you can see the connection between Israel as the land and human beings as God's chosen vessel for his presence through bearing his image. You can take that as deep as you want to. I'm probably going to lose half my audience at this point because I'll be thinking about that for some time. <laughs> yeah, that is pretty deep. It just goes to show why you need to pay attention to the terminology being used in the original language. Uh, you said plenty of times before, Tim, that when the word Earth gets used in the translation, it has us thinking about planets instead of the land, and that really alienates us from the connection scripture between the people and the land. See what I did there with planets and aliens, your favourite topic? Yeah, nice one. And I'm glad you said it because it really shows that a lot of people still have this science fiction worldview that we need to break free from if we're going to get into the head of the ancient Israelite. And this is a classic passage that gets butchered by people who haven't been able to disengage from that modern scientific mindset, as we'll see. But let's begin with introductions. And we have an introduction of sorts here. 
Oh, yeah, thanks. So my name's Chris. I'm into uh, rock climbing and D&D. I'm just a single guy in love with Jesus. Uh, that's not what I meant. Sorry, what did you mean? We're introducing Noah. Noah, didn't we already do that last season? Well, yeah, we did, but we're doing it again. Why would we do that? Isn't that redundant? Yeah, well, we're allowed to be redundant because it's poetry. Remember what we were talking about last week? Notwithstanding what I've been saying over the last couple of weeks about the documentary hypothesis, it is clear that the biblical text has been brought together from a variety of sources. I just don't think you can separate those sources according to the categories typically laid out in the source-critical hypothesis. We've seen from the outset of this podcast series that the primeval history is indeed an assortment of works by a range of authors over a considerable span of time. And they certainly were compiled by a masterful scribe or perhaps a group of scribes to compose this literary masterpiece that has been passed down to us. As I was saying last week, there are no accidental lines or mistakes in this composition. Everything's very intentionally put in its place under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so that's how it came to be that after the genealogy of Genesis 5, which introduced us to Noah, we were then given those early verses of Genesis 6 by way of background and context to prepare us for Noah's story. And again, this entire narrative is set in order by a poetic structure which requires that certain elements of the story be placed in certain positions in order for the poem to function. So we're again introduced to Noah, but this time he's placed at the beginning of his own story rather than the conclusion or perhaps the telos of that of Adam. It all makes a lot more sense when you know how to read it. Seeing the flood story as poetry really clears up a lot of these things. Yeah, but we're not really going to spend much time on the story of Noah before it gets interrupted by the flood narrative. Again, as I was saying, the fact that the documentary hypothesis doesn't hold water doesn't get us away from the fact that this text is a composition from a variety of sources, and that's quite evident when we read this passage. Because we open with the phrase, El toledot Noach, or these are the generations of Noah, and we've talked about that phrase before. These other generations is kind of clunky, but it does the job. That word toledot comes from the Hebrew root yalad, which is about bringing forth children. So the idea is that we're about to be told about the generations that will proceed from Noah in a genealogy. At least we would be, except that the poetic structure of this text requires that the flood story interrupt the genealogy. And it's going to be an awfully long time before we get back to finishing that thought, at least on this podcast. But, you know, we will hear about his kids. Uh, but first, we're going to hear a bit about the man himself. This is verse 9b. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, there's a lot going on in this verse, so we're going to walk through it slowly. The term translated as righteous in our text is tzaddik. And righteous is probably a good translation, but we need to talk about how that term functions. This word isn't used to designate status. This isn't Noah being called righteous. The way this word works in the text is to tell us that Noah did works of righteousness. And back at the end of season five of the podcast, when we were first introduced to Noah, I went into some detail there about how Noah was called the preacher of righteousness in the New Testament on the basis that his life, by its very nature, honoring God, proclaimed the righteousness of God. Yeah, and that was, that was a really great episode. And for anyone who's looking for that one, it was season five, episode 18. It was called Noah the Eighth. Yeah, that was a good one. So it's not like the author is just telling us something about Noah for the sake of honouring him, indicating some kind of status. Noah is righteous because he lives in a righteous manner, and it's the works of righteousness that he performs that makes this word appropriate. That might bother some people who still think there's really a dichotomy between faith and works with regard to salvation. 
this isn't about earning salvation. It's about honoring the God who saves you. And you might want to sit back and say, well, I don't need to do works of righteousness because Jesus Christ is my righteousness. And if I just believe in him, then I'm righteous in the sight of God. But if that's what you're doing, then you're really making a mockery of the gospel of Christ. The reason that the Toledot of Adam concludes with Noah is to show Noah as the exemplary human. He's doing what we're supposed to do. He's actually living as God's image bearer, not just relying on an intended status. And what Christ does for us is, in spite of our failings, to bring us into the unity of the body of Christ so that the body can function to do the works of God. It's not about salvation. It's about doing the work. Later, we're going to hear about the instructions given to Noah and his obedience. But at this point, we don't know what those works of righteousness that he was known for actually were. But I like to think that Noah was probably not a high-profile, attention-seeking minister. In a world full of hostility and violence, it doesn't pay to stand out. He's probably just quietly getting on with the job of doing whatever the Lord asked of him. And we're supposed to do the same. So you can't just believe. You have to do stuff. Is that what we call working out our salvation? It certainly is. Anyway, we have Hebrew word ish here, which, as opposed to the more generic Adam, specifically refers to the fact that he is a man and one part of the intended unity of man and woman. He's a good man. He's a faithful husband. Later, we're going to see the consistent use of the repetition of the phrase, a male and his mate, and again, two and two. Where God uses the animals to belittle the line of Cain and the Nephilim even further by showing even the animals more righteous than they. But for now, we hear Ish, and the implication is that, naturally, that goes together with Isha, his woman. So the righteousness of Noah extends to his family relationships as well as his dealings with God. Noah was blameless in his generation. So we've already talked about righteousness. We have another word here translated as blameless. The Hebrew word here is tamim, and it's a bit of a tricky one because it carries this idea of being faultless whether that be in the sense of perfection in conduct or perfection in physical form. And that may not be a choice we have to make between form and conduct necessarily. The next time we see this word in scripture, it'll be applied to Abram when God instructs him to walk before him and be blameless. But then most of the time when we find this word, it's referring to the physical condition of animals for sacrifice. When you brought an offering to God, you had to bring one that was perfect and not your scratch and dent stock from the shop floor. You couldn't bring something that had a lower commercial value than the best you could offer. Everything offered to God has to be perfect. And that's just because God is worthy of nothing less than perfection. That's the standard, and nothing else will do. In the same way, when God is looking for a person through whom he's going to reveal himself, his standard is no less scrupulous. But this isn't just about the conduct of the individual. This terminology is also applied to integrity and faithfulness, which is, of course, getting at the heart of the individual rather than their work. We also can't neglect the idea of physical perfection. As I mentioned before, a significant proportion of the usage of this term has to do with the physical condition of animals being brought for sacrifice. One reason that Noah was particularly chosen for this calling is because of his humanity on a physical level. Earlier in this season of the podcast, we talked at length about the way that the interbreeding of the sons of God and the daughters of men resulted in a second race of people on the earth known as the Nephilim. What we're supposed to understand from this text is that the righteous conduct of Noah had prevented him and his family by extension from being tainted with this hybrid humanity that was taking over the land. Mm, and why is that so important? It's important because when God chose the man to be his representation in the world, he had a particular purpose for doing that through humanity. 
There's something that God sees in us that makes us suitable and appropriate for making God known in the world. So it's essential that we protect and preserve the human form because that is what God created for the purpose of revealing his glory in the world. That's why humans who are faithful to God are called his body. The Nephilim were people who had chosen to embody other gods. And that was in spite of the fact that God had created people to represent him. It was the Nephilim who were the people of Noah's generation. Now that brings me to an important point here. Depending on which translation you have, you might have read this part of the verse as Noah was perfect in his generations. That's going to get a lot of concordists and science fiction buffs excited because it sounds like the text must absolutely, certainly, undoubtedly be referring to genetics. And wouldn't it be great to be able to point to a particular verse of scripture and say, here's the proof that ancient people knew all about gene science and they understood the distinction between the humans and the Nephilim on a genetic level. I get the feeling that you're not about to say that. Right, you are as always, mate. Even though I just talked about that Hebrew word tamim in the context of physical perfection, completeness, that doesn't carry with it some kind of association with a knowledge of the genetic sciences. Obviously, people understood about breeding and they understood genealogies. We've already seen abundant proof of that so far in Genesis. But honestly, if I hear another person talk about DNA in a conversation about the biblical text, I think I'm going to scream. Nobody knew about DNA until the 19th century AD. It certainly wasn't on the mind of the ancient Israelite. I don't know how I can state that more clearly. The biblical authors and their audience lived in a pre-scientific age. They just didn't have the scientific concerns and questions that modern people have. So when we see that word tamim in scripture, we're not talking about a scientific understanding of a perfect specimen. As far as the ancient world was concerned, an animal presented without defect was one that had a good coat and good teeth and good eyes and no obvious deformities. Had to be the right size, not too big, not too small. It's about fitness and good physical condition. That's all they're talking about. They haven't got microscopes and petri dishes and test tubes. They're not conducting genetic experiments and documenting the results. I don't care what they tell you on the History Channel late at night. I'm here to talk about the text of Scripture. People are going to push back on me here and say, read the text that says generations. That means genetics. Oh, does it now? Let's read our original text in Hebrew. Noah lived as a man of righteousness, a man without fault among those who were going around in his days. That last word there in the Hebrew derives from the Semitic root dura, which is based on the idea of moving in a small circle. It comes from the traditional layout of dwellings in a family household. They used to build a little hut for each small family unit, but the entire family, spanning multiple generations, all had their huts oriented around a circular court in the centre, where they'd come together and interact as part of their daily life, so they'd eat together, and the kids would play there, and all that sort of thing. This concept gave rise to the idea of a generation in the sense that, if you were the patriarch, then everybody who joined your family during your lifetime would be in your circle. Later, this idea was expanded to encompass the idea of all people who were alive during your lifetime rather than just those who lived in your little family village. But again, this is about your circle, not your bloodline or your DNA. So the point being made by the use of this particular terminology is the idea of contemporaries rather than some kind of ancestry. It's about the people who were alive at the same time as you, whether they're young or old. And that's why I chose to render this verse as follows. Noah lived as a man of righteousness, a man without fault, among those who were going around in his days. Yeah, that's a really good way to express the meaning there because you get the idea of living in righteousness and the idea that it's associated with Noah's works rather than just a description of him. 
And it also keeps the ambiguity between perfect conduct and perfect physical form and kind of lets you choose how you interpret that because both of those options are legitimate and this way you can have both of them at once. Uh, and it's a clever way to preserve the original meaning behind that phrase, which is usually translated as generation. And, and I like it because we still talk that way today sometimes. We often hear people talk about the crowd they used to get around with and that kind of thing. Yeah, it certainly made a lot of sense to me. Hopefully it's going to help people to understand that they shouldn't be trying to import the modern meaning of words based on ancient translations like Greek, where genesis is used in the sense of origin. Again, the idea of origin is connected to the place of the paternal family home. That's where you come from. That's your genesis. Just because modern terms like genetics share a similar Greek origin, it doesn't give you license to run rampant with theories of ancient people having the power to manipulate DNA and that kind of science fiction garbage. The text says that Noah walked with God. And that's obviously meant to remind us of the righteous people that came before him, first with Adam, but then in particular with Enoch. Unlike the situation with Enoch, there's no plural verbiage around that phrase, so it's not saying that Noah, like Enoch, walked among the gods. This time it's Noah alone with God, and that's a sad reminder of the divine rebellion and Noah's lonely walk with God. Anyway, speaking of the family home, we're now reminded that Noah was the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is information we already had from the end of Genesis 5, but as we've been learning recently, the poetic structure of the flood narrative often requires a degree of repetition in order to make the construction of the poem work. So the inclusion of Noah's sons at this point is really just to provide counterbalance for the other end of the chiasm where they're going to form an integral part of the narrative moving forward after the flood. And speaking of repetition, when you read verses 11, 12 in English, it does seem quite repetitive. Yeah, uh, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Uh, again, I think we might be better served by a slightly more wooden rendering of the Hebrew. The land was in ruins before the face of God, and the land was full of violence. And God saw the land and beheld its desolation, for all mortal beings had corrupted their way of living in the land. That's quite a bit more colourful. Yeah, I mean, I can see what the translators of the ESV were thinking when they used the word corrupt in the text, but I feel like the repetition of that term really diminishes its impact. So in my version there, I tried to incorporate some terms that were consistent with the meaning but seemed to fit better in the context. We generally don't use the term corrupt to describe something that's rotten or desolate or ruined, and I think that's what's going on there, although I did like the use of that word when it came to the state of the people and their way of life. I also went a bit more literal with conveying the idea of the face of God because that's what the text actually says. And I wanted to avoid the imported idiom of uh, in the sight of God there because that has the tendency to shift our attention toward what God can see. And we're going to be told in the very next line what God sees, which makes it redundant. But the common expression before the face of God indicates defiance and rebellion, as we'll see when we get into chapter 10 and the story of Nimrod. So I wanted to bring that out there because I thought it was important in this discussion, which is, after all, focused on the rebellion of man against God. As always, Tim, that's a good observation. Thank you. Uh, I also thought it was important to render the phrase all flesh as all mortal beings because I don't think it's intended to indicate some kind of moral failing of the animals. But the intent there is to remind the humans of their mortality in the face of their striving for immortality and divine power. It also plays into that breakdown of distinction between man and beast, as we talked about earlier. 
One repetitive element in the translation that I was happy to see, although you know my opinion on this, was the mention of the earth, which again should be consistently translated as land. The land gets repeated four times in those two verses, and the author is really driving home that sense of connection that the people are supposed to feel with the land when he says that the land is corrupt. We're supposed to understand that the people as a whole are corrupt. And again, that use of land in place of people brings us back to Israel as a nation, as a people. For an audience in exile, this is helping them to see the words of Leviticus 18, which, for those who don't recall, was about sexual purity. And it says, from verse 24, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations, so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Well, the land itself is about to reject its inhabitants here. The flood is coming. It sure is, but we're going to leave it there for now because it's time for Q&A. Awesome. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible, or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. We have another anonymous question this week through the website, giantanswers.com. And as I'm reading this question, I can certainly understand why they wanted to remain anonymous, so I don't blame them. This is a tricky one. So our anonymous listener asks, Hi, TJ. I've been really enjoying your recent coverage of the Giants, but I was kind of wishing you would talk more about the different giant clans listed in the Torah. In particular, I want to know about the Amalekites. How do we know they were giants? And what is the connection between them and the enemies of Israel today? I recently heard the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu refer to the Palestinian uh, terror organisation Hamas as Amalek. Uh, the Palestinians, the descendants of the Amalekites. Ooh. Okay, well, that's a very interesting bunch of questions there. Not controversial at all. Not. Uh, Let's start with the first one. How do we know the Amalekites were giants? Okay, so I actually have a whole chapter on this in my book, Answers to Giant Questions, and for those playing along at home, it's chapter 19. But you don't need my book if you know where to look in the Bible. We actually get the genealogy that produces Amalek in Genesis chapter 36. Just about every person connected with the heritage of Amalek comes from one of the other giant clans that we know about. Those include the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Horites, and the Amorites. Technically, those are not all clans by definition, and you could belong to two or even three of those groups at the same time. But those are going to be the names of people groups that you'll find in Scripture which contain populations of giants. Okay, so there's some pretty careful wording there when I said that these groups contained populations of giants. And that's not the same as tarring them all with the same brush. That's really important to remember 
because it's a major part of our defence against the argument that the conquest of the promised land amounted to genocide. Anyway, those are some pretty good reasons to consider the Amalekites as one of the giant clans. But I have experienced some pushback from people who say, well, it just doesn't say that they were giants. You know what? They're right. There's nothing in the Hebrew text that explicitly states that these Amalekites were giants. That's because it's written in Arabic. Uh, what? Yeah, that's right. Remember a few episodes ago, we were talking about how the biblical authors had no problem with using a word borrowed from a different language if it got the job done. And I have mentioned many times before that there is no Hebrew word that means giant. So what's the Arabic word for giant? Oh, that's a good question. And before I answer it, I want to tell you a little story. I was on my way home from work today and I felt a little bit peckish. So I stopped at a grocery store looking for something delicious, uh, also some eggnog. And I was in a part of town that has a big ethnic community. So naturally, there's all kinds of delightful treats from all over the world. So I'm looking at these yummy things. And the one thing that caught my attention was a big box of Lebanese sweets. So you just got to try and imagine this, right? Hundreds of layers of crunchy, flaky, buttery pastry, absolutely dripping in honey, pure bliss. So I'm looking at this box of Middle Eastern treats, which, of course, I purchased. This thing's like half a kilo or a bit over a pound if you still use Freedom Units. And, uh, and I get thinking about my uncle. I have an uncle from Lebanon. As soon as I saw these delicious little desserts covered in honey, I thought of him because I know he loves honey very much. On a couple of different occasions, I've been out with him in the bush and we found wild bees. And every time this happens, old Uncle Manir gets very excited and wants to get the honey. Now, I love honey as much as anyone. It's probably my favourite food as a kid, but I really had no idea how special honey was to Uncle Manir. When I was growing up, you could get any kind of sweet treat you could possibly think of, usually made from sugar or corn syrup or some sort of artificial sweetener. So honey was just another sweet thing in my repertoire of sweet treats. As a kid, I usually had it on toast. But when I saw how excited my uncle got about the possibility of being able to get some wild honey, it occurred to me that back home in Lebanon, this would have been a very special food. It would have brought back memories of special occasions and celebrations of all kinds family get-togethers, and traditional cultural food prepared in the home kitchen. Notwithstanding all of that, I was still a bit surprised when Uncle Manir, who's past retirement age, started trying to climb a gum tree to get honey out of a hollow in the trunk. Surrounded by thousands of swarming bees and with no container handy for keeping the honey. So I'm there trying to figure out what he's going to do with it if he actually manages to succeed. After he got stung a couple of times and I reminded him about his lack of a container, he reluctantly came down from the tree. We didn't get any honey that day. It was another day where we got some because we found a tree that had been pushed over and we lit a fire to smoke out the bees and then we could help ourselves to the honeycomb. Anyway, I'm rabbit trailing here. The point is that having an uncle from Lebanon can be a really great cultural asset for someone like me living in Australia where we have no exposure to that culture. One thing I like about spending time with my uncle Manir is that we get to talk about God and the Bible quite a lot. He grew up in a land where most people are Muslim, but he became a Catholic, and that means that he knows two things. He reads the Bible, and he knows Arabic as a first language. And that means I can ask him things about the Arabic language that I can't ask anybody else. That is a pretty cool story, I've got to say. But what is the Arabic word for giant? Oh, it's almost there. Could have let me continue that little rabbit trail. But yeah, it is getting late. So anyway, Uncle Munir knows about the book that I wrote about giants. One day he said to me, you know what we call a giant back home? And I didn't know, so I asked, and he said, Amalek. Listen to that again. Amalek. 
And, and I said, you mean like in the Bible when they say Amalek? And he said, yeah, same. Man, I wish I'd found about that before I, I wrote my book. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Yeah, so so this is another one of those typical scenarios where a Hebrew scribe borrows a word from another language and then plays with it a little bit to poke fun at them. You might have noticed the similarity with the Semitic word for king, which is Melech. We talked about that before with Lemech in Genesis 4. Remember that Lemech was the king of chaos with his name made out of the mixed-up letters of Melech. In Amalek, we also find this king or ruler, but this time modified to make it similar to the Arabic word for giant. That's not accidental. And the other thing it does is it makes the name sound like another Hebrew word meaning to lick up, which is lachak. That might sound like a bit of a stretch, but it's associated in rabbinic literature with the idea that the Amalekites drank the blood of their enemies. Since the Israelites always poured the blood of sacrifices on the ground, the idea was that an Amalekite would lick it up if he found it. That's really gross. Yes, yes it is. I think I preferred the story about the honey. Me too. Anyway, that blood drinking thing might have some connection to vampires in Jewish folklore. Uh, I should also point out that it has become popular to read the name Amalek in light of the Hebrew term for king and paying particular attention to the A sound at the front. We often see words beginning with A and used as the opposite of the same word without the A. You get this in a lot of religious terminology. For example, we say theist or atheist, millennial or amillennial. And you get people who read Amalek in the same way, so that if Melek means king, then Amalek means no king. But the problem is that Hebrew doesn't function that way, and we get that usage of the letter A from Latin, not from any biblical language. So if anybody tells you that Amalek means no king, you can politely disabuse them of that notion. But we better keep moving because we need to talk about what connection there might be between the enemies of Israel then and now. The people known as the Amalekites were, as far as we know, completely wiped out eventually, no thanks to King Saul, who spared the king of the Amalekites and almost brought Israel to complete destruction at the hands of a certain Haman the Agagite. We might talk about that another time. Nevertheless, the Amalekites eventually disappear from the pages of Scripture and from the history books about the 7th century BC. However, the enmity between Israel and Amalek became legendary and resulted in the term Amalek being used for any great enemy of Israel. We do the same thing today when we refer to someone as Hitler. It's not that we really think that person is Hitler. It's just very evocative language. It makes the point, and the comparison in most cases probably shouldn't be taken seriously. Having said that, the modern enemies of Israel do need to be taken seriously, and at the front of everybody's minds at the moment, given recent events, is the terrorist group known as Hamas. We actually saw that word in our Bible reading earlier because it is the word translated as violence. And these are the people that the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was referring to when he used that evocative name of Amalek. Let's be really clear about this. I'm quite sure that he doesn't actually think that there's some kind of biological connection between this terrorist organization and these desert raiders who ambushed Israel at the Exodus. It's not a biological connection, but there certainly seems to be an ideological one. I also want to say that just because Hamas operates from Palestine, that doesn't mean that all Palestinians are part of that problem. Many of us in the West don't realize just how many Palestinian Christians there are. And we need to be praying for all people on all sides of that conflict because Jesus loves all of them. We should love them too. 
We also need to be careful that our words and actions do not dehumanise the people that we see on the other side of the conflict from our perspective. It's okay for biblical authors to describe large people as giants. It's not okay for people to call other human beings some kind of inhuman monsters, especially when you have an influential platform that can turn others toward that point of view as well. Amen, brother. That's really important. And uh, it was a pretty interesting question to answer. I thought you handed it very well. Your words were as sweet as honey. I see what you did there. All right, well, that's all we have time for. We'll be back next week as we continue our introduction to the story of the flood. That's right. And don't forget, peeps, you can send in your questions via our website, giantanswers.com. And just like the person who asked this question, you can be anonymous if you want to. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. See you then. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops we'll catch you next time on the answers to giant questions podcast thank you for listening to the answers to giant questions podcast a production of the raven creek social club if you like what you heard today please take a moment to rate or review the show music supplied under copyright by great forsaken greatforsaken.com you can get the book answers to giant questions by tj stedman on amazon in paperback and kindle format Check out the other podcasts at RavenCreeksc.com and go to GiantAnswers.com for more answers to giant questions. Read the blog and catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Look what I've got. What have you? Oh, okay. Is that is that Merv Hughes? Got it in one. <laughs> Uh, so I went to this polka dot vintage markets on uh, Saturday, right? Um, and got this for eight dollars fifty. There's a bottle opener, and it makes noises when you're like, "Yeah, you got him or whatever." And there's yeah, all right. different faces. And, uh, yeah, this is like I don't know how, how long ago they made these, like ten yeah. years ago, whatever. I see the uh, the mower's making some progress. We're getting a few compliments on it, thankfully. I like little things. Digits are some of my favourite people. Smurfs and such. Yep, dwarves, hobbits. Halflings, tieflings. Three-quarterlings. Three-quarterlings, yep. Oh, look. So I'm the man who has everything, unless you can send a, uh, a Christian wife in the mail. And we live without you. Tied in very well to what you were teaching. Yes, yeah, so there's probably a bunch of people going, yes, but what did that have to do with honey? <laughs> it's very pretty. Nice. You know what else is pretty? Matthews. Matthews. You thought I was going to say you, didn't you? Uh, You're pretty uh, as well. Yes. Pretty um, fly for a white guy. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll take that. I hung some Christmas lights around the house. Oh, yeah. Uh, (laughs) It's so stupid that we do this in Australia. Like, no one here knows what snow looks like, and, you know, everyone's hanging, you know, snowflakes and icicles and this kind of thing. And, you know, I've got these little things that dangle from the gutters that are supposed to be like, you know, um, icicles or something <laughs> glittering with their fucking lights. And I'm like, well, 
I, I'm just going to appreciate the lights and not pretend that, you know, it's cold or something. Well, I guess it's a bit of uh, fulfillment, but dreaming. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, you know, it's not like people in Sweden and England are hanging, you know, sunglasses and eskies. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, yes, it, it's the fantasy flight. of it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Benjamin right. Netanyahu. Benjamin Netanyahu. Mm. I've never had a problem with saying it before. Benjamin Netanyahu. Hmm. <sighs> tough, tough Netanyahu to crack. Uh, yes. And I can understand why they wanted to remain Renee. Come on, Renee. You know what I say. Okay. Not just bulk eggnog. But also, I've eaten most of it. Uh, Nabil's Lebanese sweets. Like baklava? Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. I've always liked it, but um, this would be the first time that I saw a huge packet of it and just went, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy that. Pairs well with the nog. Mm. Oh, that, that's yep. good. Delightful. Awesome. Just a just a little thing.